you're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We decided to take a break from post-election talk to bring you a story about the politics of art. Just after daybreak this morning, a Royal Hawaiian moving van pulled onto Iolani Palace grounds to receive very precious cargo, the oil painting of Queen Liliuokalani seen on display on the first floor of the only palace in our nation, was taken off the wall and placed in a special crate this weekend. The Royal Order of Kamehameha was on hand to send off the gold leaf portrait with an oli, a chant asking for protection on this journey. Kana, the executive director of the Friends of Iolani Palace, shared that the portrait will be part of an exhibit at our nation's capital next spring. Next April, she'll be at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., and it's um, an exhibit called 1898 American Imperium. It'll talk about Guam and Puerto Rico and the Philippines and Hawaii and basically what was happening. We kind of look at this as... The Queen went to Washington, D.C. many times to try to tell her story, and it fell on deaf ears in many, many ways. And this time, it's the federal government telling her story for all the world to hear. And it'll be interesting to see what the story is. But when you walk into the exhibit, because I've kind of walked through the National Portrait Gallery, the very first thing you're going to see is this magnificent portrait. But it's really bittersweet to see her leave. And to hear them, the Royal Order chant and hear Aloha Oi. But it was Royal Hawaiian Movers, you know, which is really apropos. She'll be on display until the end of 2023, as we know. Um, you know, it may change, it may go a little longer, and, and then we see what happens after that. The portrait is on loan to the palace by the Hawaii State Archives. Chief Archivist Adam Jansen says this is an opportunity for conservationists to clean the oil painting and to repair the Goldie frame for future generations. This is a really unique opportunity from my perspective of two things. One, being able to tell Hawaii's story on a large global scale and getting a little something back for the people of Hawaii that, that we couldn't do ourselves. Uh, to wit, in order to borrow the painting, the National Portrait Gallery is going to put a significant amount of money into cleaning and restoring, particularly the frame. They're going to strengthen it and they're going to regild it. So when it comes back, it should look as beautiful as the day it was originally created. And is this the first time that we know that it's moving across oceans here and across the continent? My understanding is yes, it's only made one short trip over to Washington Place and then back. And other than that, it's been in the palace for its entire life. So this, this grand journey, I think, is also very symbolic as Her Majesty made this same trip to D.C. to plead her case. And now this Cogswell portrait of her is going to be telling that story again in Washington, D.C. And it was a big deal, I understand, taking this portrait off the wall uh, because it's hung there for so long. But the painting itself is in pretty good shape. Yes, and that was one of the, the challenges, is there really wasn't documentation how it was mounted onto the wall. So we were very fortunate that the National Portrait Gallery does this all over the world. So they flew in four art handlers from a specialized company who have vast experience and understand these things to make sure it could, it could come off the wall safely and do a physical examination before this even occurred. Is it safe to transport overseas? And fortunately, the answer came back. The portrait, the canvas is in really good shape. It's clean, doesn't need to be stretched. But the frame itself really needs to be addressed. It's, it's had some wear and tear on it and a little bit of termite damage and the joints are loose. So they're going to clean up, tighten up and then regild parts of it as well. And as this portrait makes its way across the continent, I mean, it's being trucked over from one end to the other. And again, that's the, the experts handling this is absolutely amazing. It is being escorted from the time it left the palace to the time it gets on the airplane. It's going to have folks in L.A. waiting to receive it there, immediately get loaded onto a truck, and then have a team of drivers drive it nonstop just, you know, just to, for gas. 
until it gets to where it needs to go at the portrait gallery in D.C. How long will that journey take? Do we have any idea? They, they are estimating it's, it's going to take some 30-some-odd hours to get there. And then the Smithsonian staff will be on the other end to receive it? Yes, and, and they're going to take it. Again, they're going to do a physical inspection. They're going to remove the canvas from the frame, and then they're going to send the frame to one of the finest restorers on the East Coast. So again, it's an opportunity that we don't have. They're going to be able to leverage all of their infrastructure and their contacts to really give it the best care that, that possibly can happen. And as this exhibit opens in April, uh, you know, this is a politics of this Pacific region. You know, there are stories that haven't been told. And so I'll be curious to see, you know, what gets presented, because, you know, my understanding is it's going to talk about the Spanish-American War, right, uh, and, and then our part in all of this. And, and to me, that is the really fascinating aspect to it. You know, they're, they're recognizing the 125th anniversary of this huge expansion because of the Spanish-American War, the invasion of the Philippines, the annexation of Hawaii. But they're doing it through a lens of examining the debates around U.S. imperialism and the effect it had on the people living in these areas to address the realities of their loss of self-determination. So the fact that the federal government is telling the story from that perspective in this day and age, I think, is, is very, very relevant, because what we're seeing with this last election cycle is this rise of hyper-nationalism and all of these laws coming out where you can't teach any history in school unless the U.S. is the hero of the story. And that's not the reality of it. You know, anybody who studied history knows that there were a lot of things that we need to learn these lessons so we don't make these same mistakes. So the fact that they're telling this story, I think, is, is very important because they're anticipating a, a million people are going to see this exhibition. And, and it's particularly because they're focusing on Her Majesty that in, in their own words that the, the, this large painting creates a focus on a woman, a native Hawaiian, and a person of col uh, color. And all of those factors uh, have a presence in the exhibition to serve as undergirding tenants of this story. So the, the painting is just so impressive. And my understanding is as soon as you get into the gallery, that is going to be the first thing everybody sees. And, and it's going to seem me larger than life and incredibly majestic. And we understand that the uh, royal order, you know, has been there throughout, you know, as this painting was getting taken down from the, the palace wall there. They were there this morning uh, sending it off and will be there when this exhibit opens in April. That is correct. And, and that was one of my asks is that the National Portrait Gallery reach out to the royal societies to make sure that they have some ability to make sure that things are done appropriately, you know, everything is pono, and that they have an opportunity to pay homage uh, to the Queen's portrait as she makes this, this journey again to D.C. Yeah, so the proper protocol for the Queen, and while we will be without her for a while, we hope that uh, the trade-off is that uh, we get that portrait uh, in tip-top shape and then she can be preserved uh, for future generations. Yes, and, and again, the fact that they can tell this story on a stage on, on such a level we could never hope for, I think it is really going to be advantageous to educate people about what Hawaii went through. Okay, but well you're going to be on pins and needles till you get the word that uh, she's safe and sound there in D.C. And, and I know it's in good hands. Anything else you want to add just about this? I mean, the palace is decorated, you know, to honor King Kalakaua's birthday later this week. So it was just really quite a spectacle this morning, you know, to see everything all dressed up as, as the Queen's portrait was being, uh, as it made its way down the stairs. It, it really was an incredibly powerful experience. And I would encourage anybody who has the ability to go see this exhibition. And it's definitely going to be worth seeing. That was state archivist Adam Jansen, who spent the morning tending to the logistics of transporting an oil painting of Hawaii's last reigning monarch. The portrait is being flown to the West Coast, where it'll make the nonstop journey to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Members of the Royal Order of Kamehameha are expected to be on hand when the exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery opens in late April 2023. <laughs>
This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Author Mark Twain arrived in our islands in 1866, so we're testing your knowledge of other significant events that happened that year. You might remember that the first group of those afflicted with leprosy, or Hansen's disease, arrived on Molokai that year, exiled to the Kalopapa Peninsula. Queen Emma returned from a trip to Europe in the United States, while Princess Victoria Kamamalu died at the age of 27. Uh, in our islands uh, at that time, uh, we exported over 17 million pounds of sugar, over 850,000 gallons of molasses, and over 22,000 pounds of cotton. Outside of our state, a very significant invention that made a big impact in the mining, construction, and demolition industries was created. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want you to tell us the name of this invention. Here's a hint. It was invented by Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel, the same person the Nobel Prize is named after. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com. It's a go-to place for parents and students, and they're starting to crop up in some of our public schools. HBR's Casey Harlow joins us this morning to tell us more about Family Resource Centers. Good morning. Good morning, yes. Uh, so uh, the Family Resource Center, uh, for I guess the past year or so, uh, throughout the Kailua Kalaheo uh, complex area here on Oahu, uh, they have been popping up in schools, and Kailua High School uh, is one of them, and I heard about this through a parent uh, of a couple students at Kailua High School. And so I kind of wanted to do a little bit of digging of what exactly these uh, re- this resource center does. And so uh, they offer digital literacy courses for parents. They offer uh, very recently financial literacy with the partnership uh, with Navy Federal Credit Union. Uh, but more importantly, uh, these centers uh, are a resource for uh, families to go to if they have any questions about, you know, um, where can I uh, get help with this? Or where can I uh, get help with that? It's basically serving as a community hub. And the idea of this came about two years ago when Stacy Oshio became the school's principal. And the idea of it really was to help parents understand the DOE's digital resources, specifically Infinite Campus. This is something that they can track uh, their uh, grades and attendance and you know sometimes assignments and uh, Maybe sometimes it's Google Classroom as well, which is another platform that parents use. And this is uh, Oshio who, you know, kind of the idea behind the center of why she wanted this. We often forget that some parents don't have some of those skills. Some of them don't even have computers. So we talked about even if it's just a room with computers that's manned by somebody, that when we ask them to go check their kids' report cards and all of that, we got to remember that some of them don't have that at home. So if we have a place for them, a safe place to offer those kinds of services. And so this is a a classroom. It's not virtual or anything like that. Uh, It was a, well, as uh, Diana Baldwin, who is the Parent Community Network Coordinator, or they often like to call it a PCNC, which I was like, what is that? That's an acronym of (laughs) something, right? And uh, she also oversees the center. And uh, basically she said that this was a place where, you know, 
uh, teachers would dump stuff, uh, extra stuff in, and they finally got it cleaned up. And uh, with the help of the Governor Emergency Education Relief Grant in the amount of uh, about $500,000, uh, Kailua High School, along with Kalaheo High School, along with uh, schools like Kailua Elementary, Waimanalo Elementary, and intermediate schools, they were able to set up these kinds of centers as well. And so kind of going back to, you know, originally it was supposed to help parents understand the digital landscape of these schools. Uh, COVID hit, obviously, and uh, that made some of these longstanding issues more pronounced. And uh, in order to maximize the center's impact, they kind of had to change their way of thinking to, uh, and also the way they interacted with parents. So Diana Baldwin, who's the PCNC, uh, had this to say. I think it's because we have a totally different approach to family engagement. Before we had this kind of, you know, status quo, invite them to come to the events, sign in, feed them punch and cookies kind of thing, which is fine. But, you know, we didn't really take the time to listen to the families. We more, put more of stuff out there that we did traditionally every year. And it was the same stuff all the time. And I think it was a total shift in our thinking going from, you know, what we think they want as opposed to supporting what they really need. And I think that's one of the core reasons why this place is so special. And so they do that through a couple ways. Uh, surveys is one. Uh, they're kind of, they have a fine line of how asking uh, parents what they need, what kind of assistance they need, or what they would think, what they think, um, you know, would benefit families the most. So they have these surveys to fill out. And another way is to have these events, uh, such as uh, yoga. Uh, they mm -hmm. have a yoga session coming up. Uh, they have the Surfrider Showcase, which is coming up on Wednesday. And also uh, also on Wednesday, uh, they have, uh, or tomorrow actually, with a nonprofit called Wisdom Circle, they have an Ina and Art uh, event where parents and students come together and they, um, have this event where they do art, they have a learning session, and uh, it's just another way for the school to interact with these families to, you know, not only uh, find out what their needs are, but also to build a community. Uh, Stacey Oshio said that she wanted to build a community hub of sorts, you know, something, something where the community can come together and they can build that relationship with the broader community as well. But there are limits uh, to what the center can provide. Um, obviously, they are very short on resources, which is kind of a lot uh, for something that needs to be said a lot about DOE schools, public schools, where there's just not enough people or there's not enough funding to go around. And so uh, this is Baldwin, who says they really had to focus on what they need to provide. We don't need to be everything to everybody. We need to pick a few things and do them very well, because we only get one shot at this. So it sounds like it's really uh, building that face-to-face -face time and not just, you know, when it's uh, time to look at your, your child's report card and then they're in trouble. Yeah, so. exactly. It's taking a more proactive approach to everybody's uh, education. And this is something that uh, they found was really important and what the community needs. And so are we going to see more of these uh, in other schools, you think? Uh, that's to be uh, seen. Uh, so far right now, this is something that's only uh, in or Wide, more widespread in the Kailua Kalaheo complex area, but other schools have had something similar to this. And Oshio says that you know not every school uh, needs this, mm -hmm. or you know a center like this isn't needed in every school or can't appear in every school. It's but in Kailua High School and in the complex area, this is something that the community needed. Okay, something to watch. But thank you. Yeah, thanks. We've been talking with HBR's Casey Harlow about Family Resource Centers. You can read his stories at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Civil Beat takes us to the Solomon Islands for our reality check. Reporter Thomas Heaton joins us this morning to tell us more. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. Now, you're rolling out a series of stories. Uh, you spent a couple of weeks down there in the Solomons. Tell us more. Yes. Um, so over the course of the next uh, three days, uh, we published our first story today. Uh, we're exploring the issue of unexploded ordnance or unexploded bombs uh, harking back to World War II. Um, in the Solomon Islands. 
So, of course, uh, the Solomon Islands was the site of the battle for Guadalcanal. Um, so it was uh, essentially a giant battleground during World War II. Um, and what happened was millions of pounds of explosives were launched into the country and uh, researchers estimate that about 30% of those bombs never went off. In addition to that, after the war ended 77 years ago, um, there was a real mess that was left behind, um, and of course that included live bombs. So now uh, the Solomon Islands is facing a dire situation, uh, as it has been for the past 77 years, with bombs uh, mottling their land and their sea as well. Um, just even looking along the coast of Guadalcanal on the northern coast outside the capital city of Honiara, one can find shipwrecks littering the uh, littering the coast, and um, it's very easy to get out there and snorkel and see just exactly what the legacy of war there is. Um, so today we start off with uh, the Manello family. The Manello family are a family of subsistence farmers, um, and they were preparing a typical Monday evening meal uh, on October 25 last year. It was coming up to about 7pm. They had lit a fire over which they placed a sheet of roofing iron and they were roasting some crabs. Uh, unbeknownst to them, underneath their fire was a suspected World War II bomb. Uh, it heated up, it, it exploded and it killed Father John instantly and his 13-year-old son, Junior, died uh, a couple of hours later. I mean, that's heartbreaking to, to, to think that, you know, uh, you've got, what, like at least 20 people every year that are killed or seriously injured when this stuff goes off? Yes, so researchers of the few researchers that have really looked at this issue, uh, they estimate 20 or more die um, every year and countless are injured. Part of the reason that uh, no one has any finite numbers is because of a lack of reporting. The country is made up of almost a thousand islands. Uh, its people live on approximately 300 um, and when people die, they just die. Um, they don't get their, their deaths aren't necessarily recorded because they're in far-flung parts of the archipelago, which spans about 840 miles between Fiji and Papua New Guinea. So it's a, it's a really difficult situation. Well, you know, I think we can relate because we have so much unexplored ordinance here, right? Koholave and there are other areas, uh, you know, across the state. So, you know, your, your heart goes out to these people that are, uh, are are living with this danger every day. Yes, absolutely. And of course, meanwhile, in the background, you know, the Solomon Islands has become a real place of interest for the US as China c continues to make diplomatic inroads throughout the Pacific, but specifically in the Solomon Islands. So it's, it's really kind of complicating the issue and uh, I guess forcing the warring parties of World War Two to kind of f uh, face this issue. So you'll be exploring uh, uh, some of these uh, uh, political ramifications though, uh, as part of the series? Yes, so we'll be looking at the political ramifications. We'll be looking at uh, why it's taken so long. Uh, we'll be looking at how families like the Manelles can get assistance. Uh, they have not been able to get assistance until now. And um, yes, so we'll be looking at how how different parties are addressing the issue and see what the future holds All right. for the Solomon Islands. All right, we're looking forward to it. But thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from S2BN, presenting Bonnie Raitt in concert with guest John Cruz at the Blaisdell on March 28th and at the Mac on March 31st. Tickets on Oahu at Ticketmaster.com and on Maui at MauiArts.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Linda Yael Schiller, author of Modern Dreamwork and PTS Dreams. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about complex dreams and nightmares to work through difficult issues. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. 
Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. From Queen Ka'ahumanu to present-day Olympic gold medalist Carissa Moore, women have continued to make their mark on surfing. According to the website Surfer Today, out of 23 million people who surf worldwide, 19% are women. And that number's on the rise. Sheila Galen is a writer and creator of the podcast Dropping Into Power. Elizabeth Sneed is the founder of the Curvy Surfer Girl brand. They're social media influencers who spread the gospel of surfing to women as a way to empowerment, self-acceptance, and a community. The conversation Stephanie Hahn spoke with Galleon and Sneed about why they feel women can benefit from this beloved local sport. I'll have Elizabeth start. Okay. And why do you think so many women are starting to surf now? I think it's a wonderful time. We have a lot of access that previously didn't exist. We've got boards and instructors, and we have representation that continues to emerge for women across social media. You know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, it wasn't as welcoming to women because it was primarily a male-driven hobby and activity, although there were powerful women on the scene. I think now we're seeing cultural shifts and men are more welcoming, surf breaks are more welcoming, as we have an evolution of consciousness in the 21st century. Sheila, do you have any particular insight? You've been surfing for many years now. All of the reasons that Elizabeth cited are accurate. And when I started in 2001, it it was uncommon. Although, interestingly, I knew some women who started board shops and women's sort of surf-oriented businesses at that time, and there really weren't enough women. I absolutely credit Costco and the foam surfboard for getting just way more beginners in the water, period. Another piece is just women athletes breaking so many barriers. So not the least of which is women getting paid the same, I believe it was as of 2019 in the competitive surf world, just so much more exposure, like Elizabeth said. So it's a confluence of a lot of events, just you know, more accessibility, better equipment, more encouragement just snowballed because of the women's communities that have risen up and the women's surf schools and the social media and the presence. When I first started surfing, it came out of a time for me that was a, a really difficult emotional time. I had lost my stepsister, gotten a divorce, left a job, started a business. You know, I actually was suicidal and I found myself drawn to a place in the water that I'd long been drawn to but had never been able to surf up in Northern California. And starting surfing, it just transformed absolutely everything about my life. I mean, everything, how I thought, how I wrote, found my voice as a writer, courage, strength, commitment. There's not a single part of my life that it didn't touch. And I can completely judge my life before and after surfing and it hasn't faded. From that, I ended up learning to surf, and then I wrote a movie about that experience called Dropping In. Stories of women's transformations create other women's transformations. I actually started learning how to surf when I was at my heaviest. I'm a pretty short girl. I'm only five feet tall, and at the time, I was approaching about 220 pounds, and that was really heavy for me. That was the heaviest I'd ever been, and I was very insecure. I didn't know if I was even capable of surfing in my body type. I didn't know if I was going to have the strength, the athleticism, and my surf coach, Chelsea, at Ohana Surf Project psychologically. And she told me that, you know, your body type isn't a reason not to surf. And she was really the first person that had ever said that out loud to me and continued to motivate me to show up. And I dropped down to a pretty small size. I have an autoimmune condition, so my weight can tend to fluctuate, and it it dropped down quite a bit. And then a couple years after I'd been surfing, I started gaining weight again, and I firsthand recognized the discrimination that was happening. There were no swimsuits that would fit me. There was no one that looked like me, and uh, I decided to launch Curvy Surfer Girl in June of 2020. 
in doing so, we have invited tens of thousands of women to join us. And I believe that corporate surf brands have started to make that shift slowly but surely. And my goal is to create products and visuals and stories that support women coming into surfing. So Sheila, you mentioned before on your podcast that you thought of surfing as a calling. Calling really comes from that moment where you make this intense connection with, I guess I would connect it to what I call freedom. It's total connection and flow. Let's not call it freedom, let's call it flow. So that moment where you're one with the wave, where you're being, you know, you're in the pocket, you push, you get that tiny feeling And the other part that goes to empowerment, and this is especially true, I think, for people that learn as adults, is you have to sink into your deep own knowing. And so I tuned into this place in myself where I would just, I would just feel the wave and I would paddle over to it and it would come. So I had to find a different way to catch waves than just getting deeper at the peak. So part of my empowerment was listening to my deepest self and listening to the ocean. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. You paddle over there, you're not guaranteed a prize. Learning to listen that when you went out and it was too big and you should have listened to yourself, but also on the other side, listening to when you need to push yourself. How might surfers who are outsiders to Hawaii, who are not Hawaiian, honor the sport's origins? Elizabeth? One of the ways I think that you can honor the tradition of surfing and the native Hawaiian people is to learn about the history and the culture of the Hawaiian Islands. I think that there are extraordinary icons of surfing that have played a very important role in the concepts of liberation and freedom within a colonialist structure after, you know, 1890 with the overthrow of Queen Liliuokalani and just understanding that heritage, what it means to be in the water and how special and sacred of a practice it is in Hawaii, just recognizing that for some this is a sacred place and a sacred tradition that dates back almost a thousand years, and learn about people like Eddie Aikau, Duke Kahanamoku, Princess Kaiulani, and the role that colonialism played in almost wiping surfing off the map. A good place to start anywhere is with tremendous respect for the break itself, and particularly to those watermen and women that are experienced, that are clearly connected with the place. And yes, especially um, if they're Native Hawaiian, just having a constant awareness that this is where it came from and having tremendous respect for the ocean and for the people who love it and know it best. Thankfully, you know, attracted a, a group of women that are really very positive, encouraging, motivating. I think that we embrace vulnerability because vulnerability is really the way that we can connect with other women and people. So I try to show as many of my failures and hardships as much as my wins and successes. You know, anything that I can do to really encourage women to be successful and happy and maybe even take risks that they wouldn't normally take. And if you can think of a single valuable lesson, Elizabeth, that women can take from surfing, what would it be? One of the most important things surfing has taught me is how to surrender. It's really important because a lot of women have to go through life making very challenging decisions. And when we go out into the ocean, we have to learn to surrender. We have to learn what it means to be in rhythm and harmony of nature. And that also goes in line with what Sheila was saying about learning humility and respect. If you don't show up with humility and respect, eventually the ocean will give you that lesson. The single lesson for me is about how to fail miserably and fail ugly and still find a way to get through all of those repercussions. And I think for women, a big part of failure is shame that we have. We put, I don't, I can't really speak to what a man's experience is, but I know for women, we feel ashamed. We have such perfectionism in our minds. We're so aware that people are watching us. And you just paddle out again. Right. So all of those things develop this inner muscle that is so helpful and so empowering for women. 
That was podcaster Sheila Gellion and social media influencer Elizabeth Sneed talking to HBR Stephanie Hahn. from the idea of any one power plant always providing the power to the portfolio always providing the power. Gain a greater understanding behind the headlines. The coal plant is part of this older model of how the power system works, which is you have what's called like this base load power and it just goes 24 seven. And so when people say, oh, well, why isn't that wind turbine going? You know, it's a windy day. It's probably because of the coal plant, because the coal plant has to burn at a certain amount, and it's really expensive and hard on the plant to raise and lower it. You try to always keep it at the same amount. So by retiring the coal plant, it's actually going to reduce the amount of what we call curtailment, which is not using renewables because there's too much power. Support news coverage at HPR. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. HPR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips share a cosmic event hidden in the depths of Hubble telescope data. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also, things we can try and spot in our skies. We are so grateful to have astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal back on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week's stargazers look out for Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in our evening skies after sunset. The planets are spread out from east to the southwest. The moon this week is passing through its last quarter phase, and so conditions should be wonderful for stargazing. Now, Chris has something of a tongue twister this week, and we always love those challenging projects he brings us. And it's something about a bit of information in the past, from the past. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) Not all discoveries in astronomy happen in real time or in the present time. Often astronomers are surprised by discoveries lurking in their data archives. Last week, astronomers scraping the Hubble Space Telescope archives discovered a supernova that was caught by Hubble more than a decade ago and has remained hidden in the depths of Hubble's data. This supernova was located in a cluster of galaxies called Abel 370 and occurred just 2.3 billion years after the creation of the universe. Wow, that's pretty cool. How did it go unnoticed? I'm imagining they got a lot of stuff to sort through. Yeah, as is often the case these days, we astronomers have far more data than we can realistically handle. Petabytes of astronomical data is out there in various archives, and it's just too much to process in any one go. And as you kind of taught me before, when they're looking for one sort of pile of information, it's pretty easy to overlook other sorts of relevant stuff. Oh, totally. Astronomical research, as you know, is very focused. So, for an example, astronomers studying galaxies may miss a supernova that would have been caught by someone looking for gravitational microlensing events, which is exactly what happened here. And what's cool is, like this case sort of illustrates, you can always go back and look for these things. Indeed. Astronomical archives are truly a wonder of modern science. There are so many secrets within them, and some astronomers, including yours truly, love spending time exploring their depths, looking for the hidden treasures within. Well, fascinating stuff, as usual, from you, Christopher Phillips. We appreciate it. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we tested your knowledge of significant events that occurred in 1866, the year that Mark Twain visited Hawaii. Here in our state, the first patients moved into the new mental institution in Kapalama, and the first daily newspaper, Hawaiian Herald, began publication. Outside of Hawaii, the U.S. Congress overwhelmingly passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866. The Austro-Prussian War began, and Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel's invention exploded on the scene. 
literally. Uh, Nobel was fascinated with nitroglycerin's potential as an explosive, and he experimented with it until he was finally able to devise a method to safely detonate it. Nobel uh, obtained patents for his invention in 1867 and originally sold it as Nobel's lasting powder until he decided to change the name to dynamite, the answer to today's backyard quiz. And congrats to Mary Brewer from Eva Beach. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from An Evening with David Sedaris. The humorist, comedian, and author is coming to Hawaii Island, Kauai, Maui, and Oahu, February 11th to the 18th. Tickets at davidsedarishawaii.com. The emergency room is a very convenient place to go for care, but is it always the best? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about when the ER is a must and when it's not. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providing auto insurance since 1911, committed to delivering personalized service to residents throughout the islands. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, F-I-C-O-H dot com. Hawaii's history with opera dates back to the 1850s when King Kamehameha IV served as stage manager for his wife, Queen Emma, as she sang in the chorus of Verde's Il Trovatore. Today, Hawaii Opera Theater continues that tradition with its productions, events, and education programs. One of those programs takes place tonight. It's a master class with renowned soprano and vocal coach Jill Gardner. Gardner stopped by our studios this morning to talk with the conversation's Russell Subiano about her love of opera. How were you introduced to opera? I was introduced to opera in grade school when my fifth grade went to Reynolds Auditorium in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, (laughs) which is where I grew up, to see The Marriage of Figaro. And I was enchanted because when I was five years old, I started to play the piano. I learned to read music before I could read, read at five years of age, because I was drawn to the piano. And so by the time I was in later grade school, I had been studying piano for about seven years. And I loved it. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And I did. I went on and studied all the way through high school and did my undergraduate on full scholarship in piano performance. But this moment is so significant in my grade school life because at that time we were learning to write cursive. So we had to write a letter. And in that letter, I wrote about this opera experience Mm -hmm. of seeing Marriage of Figaro. And my mother kept this letter for me because the last line in it says, I think opera is going to be very important in my life. So I oftentimes say in my experience that I got into opera through the back door. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something that when I was young, even though I sang in church and sang in high school in choirs and did all the musical theater productions, I never thought about being an opera singer. I was studying so much to be a pianist. Mm -hmm. But it was in my undergraduate degree when I decided to take a voice minor and had a really good teacher to develop the voice that I had, I went on and entered competitions and won. And everybody was like, why aren't you going to be an opera singer? And I was like, because I'm going to be a pianist, (laughs) you know? So in some ways, those disciplines ran parallel in my life. But it was after that undergraduate degree that I decided, yes, I felt a calling (laughs) to do it. And so... I went on to then do my master's in vocal performance, and then the rest is history. One thing I've always been curious about when it comes to opera singers are 
opera singer was born or can they be made? Were you born? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's you, a good question. Were you born with with the the vocal ability to to sing in an opera style, or is that something that you had to learn and develop over time? Well, I think you know, as so many things in my life, I think it's a both and approach, Russell. Mm-hmm. I think. Yes, I was born with a clear musical talent, Mm -hmm. and I was also born with a vocal gift. Mm -hmm. That's why I love to tell people that I I started studying piano so early and so passionately in my life, because I can't imagine having become an opera singer without being a pianist. Mm -hmm. I think that, yes, God-given talent and vocal ability Mm -hmm. is necessary. You have to have the aptitude for it. But I also think that there are many things, many disciplines that need to be developed to become an opera singer. You know, it's not just a vocal ability. You have to have a musical ability. You have to be good at languages. In today's environment, you have to also have a theatrical acting Ability, because so much of opera is needing now to address the theater of it as much as the singing of it. The as I love to say, the age of park and bark is gone. (laughs) But which is sometimes sad because sometimes Mm -hmm. you want to just sit there and for me and just listen to this person sing. Mm But given all that's going on in the world right now and all the platforms that are vie for people's attention, I think opera has to, you know, step up to the plate mm-hmm. and become more of a fully fleshed discipline. And that's an exciting thing. That's also what drew me to it. I think, as I said, languages are so important. For me, what separated that, having studied piano for so long and and deciding to go into opera in my early 20s, the reason I was drawn to it were words. Mm -hmm. What separates us from all the other musical animals is that we send our voices through text. I was an avid reader, still am, loved poetry. And so when I started to work with the languages and the libretti and the texts of these characters that you were going to portray, that's actually what turned me on as much as just the singing. Oh, okay. And so I think that's why in my career I've often been seen as a singing actress Mm -hmm. much more than just a singer. So I think now that is as important as anything to keep opera alive but i also don't apologize for opera to people i'm not i don't think it's good that we try to make it into something that it's not Mm -hmm. it can certainly express all different kinds of stories and musical styles but the operatic tradition is what it is it may you know take on new clothes but it's still opera and that's that's I love that. Yeah. I'm fighting for that. What I think is very interesting about opera is it's not just the singing ability and it's the acting is is very involved, but you're also speaking a different language in many cases. Correct, right? correct. Right. Unlike, you know, musical theater, musical mm-hmm. theater, which is an American musical tradition, primarily is in English, mm-hmm. which is great. Now, a part of what I think is a way to get opera to the people is to do it in English. Uh-huh. You know, earlier in the, in like in the late 60s and 70s, they, they did that a lot. And there are companies even over in Europe to where all the operas are done in German, mm-hmm. you know, or in, in that native language. So I don't think it's a bad thing for us to look at doing new translations of operas that make them more accessible to today's audience yeah. and can and can deliver that story in English, particularly if it's a really good translation. But the beauty is, yes, that opera encompasses all languages Mm -hmm. and many people speak many languages this is the other good thing about our culture today and so i think they're not afraid of that and so therefore opera can really speak in that way you're holding a master class tonight it's free and open to the public correct is it something that say someone who is interested in getting involved in the opera is it something they could come and learn from it can you talk about what you'll be talking about at your class tonight we will have on the master class one of the younger voices from the the young voices studio fantastic local talent she's half hawaiian half samoan 
beautiful voice. She'll be a part of that master class. And then the other people that are singing on it are of the studio. And so, yes, my approach to this is that I dive right in with each individual and we work on their voice, their their presentation, their piece, their language, their musicianship, their technique, because it's all of, of a one discipline. And I think anybody, yes, I want to joyously invite anyone who would love to come who has a love of opera, but who has a love of singing or who would want to see, is this something that, you know, I might be interested in? Because maybe they've sung in their church choirs. Maybe they've sung in their school systems and realized that they have something and I think that's what's unique about Hawaii Opera Theater is that they do have this this studio experience that if you feel an inner intuitive calling to expand on that, this is a place where you can come and do that. Thanks so much for your time, Jill. I really appreciate you coming into the studio. I enjoyed talking to you. Me too. It's great to be with you, Russell. That was opera singer Jill Gardner talking about opera in Hawaii with HPR's Russell Subiono. Gardner's free master class runs from 6 to 8 p.m. tonight and is open to the public. We'll have links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear about new efforts to help inmates transitioning from life behind bars to being on the outside. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.